0: Okay, turn over there to Luke chapter 3. The goal is to get down to verse 23 tonight, so we'll see how that goes. And um, the title of the study is The King is Coming. This is, what we've seen so far is, of course, the, the announcements of the birth of John the Baptist, the conception of John the Baptist, and of uh, Mary with Jesus, and then their births. We've seen those early days of Jesus' life from the time he was 8 until the time he was 12. Now we go from 12 to 30. Um, So there's 18 years where we really don't have any statement about what was going on in his life, except that he was growing in the wisdom and the stature of men. Um, He was living a regular life. He was out working with his dad as a carpenter. He was out doing those community events. Um, probably at harvest time with the olives and harvest time in the vineyards. Um, he was just a regular guy. Growing in the wisdom and the stature of men, he was um, not as so many of these um, extra-biblical accounts like the infancy of, of, um, of Jesus where they say that you know, when Jesus was growing up and he was playing, he got mad at somebody, so he just, you know... <laughs> you know. Poof, you know, turned him into a bird or something like that. And um, all these different kind of uh, outlandish and harmful uh, miracles that he performed as a little boy. Um, Yeah, the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. It's not consistent with the nature of Jesus um, as the Son of God. So what we we have before us is exactly what God wants us to see and wants us to know. And so this is where our minds should go. It's an exciting time. Of course, there was the birth and, that, and, you know, day eight of his life, going in, meeting up with Anna and Simeon. Wow, I mean, what a, an exciting time. They, they identified, the Spirit showed them, this is the Messiah. This is the one that you've been waiting for. Simeon, I told you, you weren't going to die until you've seen the Messiah. Got good news and bad news. <laughs> right? There's the Messiah. So it's like, oh, well, he's a little baby. Okay. So then he says, well, now I can depart in peace. He kind of did the math and figured it out. He, wasn't, he was going to pass. And, and Anna, who just gave herself to prayer and fasting night and day at the temple, saw this little baby and rejoiced. But this chapter is the chapter where he is going to be identified And um, meet John the Baptist in this ministry role, and it is going to be an exciting... Now, remember, they're cousins, right? They're cousins. So it's not like they didn't know each other, but um, did John the Baptist know Jesus like this? You know, we don't have any statement about it, but it's really hard to imagine that his parents didn't say something about this, right? Um, That Jesus is, you know, Mary, you know, her son was told to her that he's a, he's a redeemer. He's a savior of the world. So I, I wish we had some more information about that, that dynamic. We don't. So again, what we have before us is exactly what we need to know. Uh, Luke is wanting to give a very orderly account. So we begin in verses 1 and 2. And we see the historical references that he makes. Um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ateria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So he's trying to put some, some time stamps on when all of this is going. The 15th year of Tiberius was A.D. 29. Um, he ruled in the Roman Empire from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., Pontius Pilate was a governor of Judea from 26 A.D. um, down to 36 A.D. And of course we know that he's the one that was so well known for the scourging of Jesus and the ultimately uh, making the decision that he would be crucified. Um, Herod, um, that is mentioned, is Herod Antipas who ruled over Galilee. Um, It was Herod who imprisoned John the Baptist because... Um, uh, you know, he called him out on the illicit relationship he had. His brother Philip was in the East over in Jordan from four BC to thirty four. So Luke is really trying to be careful to say this is when all of this was taking place, um, and so we have that as a, a, a timestamp, if you will. Now about Annas and, and and Caiaphas, just a little note about them. These are the guys. These are bad guys. Okay, these are the ones that had corrupted the worship system. This is the one that caused Jesus to turn the tables. These are the ones that, that had him arrested. Um, so you know Annas, um, the high priest from AD 6 to 15, but was removed by the Roman authorities. His son-in-law was put in place, named Caiaphas, and he reigned from 18 to 36 AD. Um, but the Jews continued to recognize um, Annas as the high priest, because Rome had intervened and taken him out of, out of the way. But um, so you have these kind of this dual uh, leadership role among the high priests. So if you've ever read through, you know, who, you know how does this, you know, who, who's the guy, maybe that explains it a little bit better. And um, so, yeah, they, Caiaphas, um, if you go to the Israel Museum, you can see um, his ossuary that um, they, they believe that it is actually his. When they found this, there was the bones of a 16-year 60, not 16, a 60-year-old man that were found in it. And um, this is, you know, Caiaphas the high priest. So they, they believe they actually found his uh, his tomb, his burial place. Um, so enough of those guys, but but just so you can have an idea that Luke is saying this is when all of this was going on. And it it lines up with what we know about the timeline of Jesus as well as the ministry um, or the time in which these men were ruling and reigning. Moving on into verse 2, it says, uh, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So from verse 2, the second half of verse 2, all the way down to verse 6, we see that John is going to fulfill the role that he has to prepare the people. And so he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. He's the son of a high priest, and yet he is not walking out that ministry as a high priest. So that would have happened up in Jerusalem, of course, right? That's where the priests ministered. But that's not where John is. John is down the mountain. He's down in the uh, the Jordan Valley, down by the Jordan River. That's where he is. This is the area that the Essenes um, inhabited. This is the area where um, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a very arid area, but you do have the Jordan River. So John went out of Jerusalem. And he began to preach down there at the Jordan River, and he was preaching one of repentance. We'll get more on that in just a moment. But in verses 2 and 3, this introduction, we just got to say that John is the greatest man who ever lived. Of course, we're not talking about Jesus, but he's the greatest man, but he is the God man. But John is the greatest man who, is, who has ever lived. John, uh, Luke 7, 28 says... For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he, Jesus you know, puts a pretty high uh, compliment upon John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a man that was humble. John the Baptist was a man that was bold. John the Baptist had a great ministry. He had one of the greatest ministries that you could ever ask for, he got to pave the way and to announce that the Messiah was coming and saying to his nation, he's here, he's coming, get your heart ready. This greatness of John is manifested in an interaction he has with his disciples. Turn with me over to John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3. We're talking about John the Baptist. This John, the book of John you're turning to, it's, it's not the same John. It's a different John. It's a John the son of Zebedee. Uh, we're talking about John the Baptist, John the son of Zacharias. But so turn to the gospel of John. In John chapter 3, verse 27, down to verse 31. It says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And what precedes this, if you just glance a few verses up, Jesus is out by the Jordan baptizing and his disciples of John the Baptist come and say, Hey, John, this guy that you pointed out, he's out baptizing and everybody's coming to his church. Everybody's going to do what he wants to do. Isn't he Jesus the Messiah and you're John the Baptist? Shouldn't he do Messiah things and you do baptizing type things. That's kind of, they're they're goading him. They're, They're trying to get him to be uncomfortable with what's going on. And so then it says, he says to his disciples, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has The bride is a bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I'm not bothered. I am not jealous over Jesus, the Messiah, and everybody's coming to him. Because if God hadn't given that to him, he wouldn't have it. God has given him that ministry. And... You know, just like a, the best man rejoices at a at a wedding, I am rejoicing that the Messiah has come. And then he says in verse thirty these well known words: "He must increase. What does it say? But I must decrease." No doubt, this is one of the things that contributes to the greatness of John. He was happy to be there for as long as God wanted him to be there, and when it was time for him to begin to fade from the scene, he had no problem with that. He was happy to do whatever the Lord had called him to do. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Let's get it straight. This one that you're bothered about, that's out baptizing, he's from heaven. And he's over everything. He can do whatever he wants to do. John understood his place before the Lord. John did not want to get in the place to begin to instruct the Messiah on how he should do things. So we see this greatness of his manifested in the humility that he had. Another reason why John was so great was because he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In Luke 1.17, we read, He will also, so he's speaking to his his father, He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This this is what he was coming to do, but he came with a power. When John spoke, it reverberated through that valley. People wanted to hear what he had to say because the Spirit of God was upon him. And although it was a hard message that he preached, one of repentance, when it was spoken, in the hearts of the people that heard it, they were like, this is so true. There is corruption. There is sin. There are things that are not right. But it was so undeniable because the Spirit of God was confirming the words that he was speaking. So he was out there um, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He also dressed like him, by the way, right? The leather belt, leather skins, kind of a wild-looking guy eating locusts and and honey. Um, And when you looked at him, he was a sight to behold. Verses 4 through 6, we see that John fulfilled the prophecy that was given concerning him. As it is written in the book, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God." You know, when a king was going to come into town, or a dignitary was going to come into to a, uh, a region, there would be those that would go before, and they would smooth out the roads. They would take out the potholes, if you will. They would take away the debris and the erosion that happened on the road. They would begin to fix it. The road would be straight. It would be a smooth place to travel. John has this ministry of trying to make the pathway into our hearts smooth for the Messiah. And the, the potholes and the erosion that he's going to deal with is that of sin, that of rebellion, that of not following the ways of the Lord. That makes it a hard way for the Lord to get into our life, anybody's life, is when the road is full of blockades of sin. Before the Lord will come into anybody's life, that sin needs to be dealt with. And I guess I should probably more correctly say, as the Lord comes into a person's life, the sin should be dealt with. And so this is what John was doing. He was calling people to get their hearts right. Look at verses 7 through 14. We see that John calls the nation to repentance. Verse 7, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So much for the homiletics that he had been taught at seminary that you should always have a real catchy... Well, it's, it's catchy. But this is definitely not the way you are taught to preach sermons. That the first things out of your mouth is to offend the most uh, recognized people there. Matthew's gospel tells us that the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees had come out to see what John was doing and it's really this comment is directed at them you you could have heard the everybody would have gasped everybody would have said oh no this is about to get ugly but john had the spirit of the lord upon him and when he was speaking they could do nothing they could do nothing to stand against him now eventually he's going to rebuke and be arrested one uh, of the political leaders for having an incestuous relationship, adulterous relationship, and they're going to have his head taken. But he, at this point, is calling them to repentance. Multitudes are, are coming to this place. Again, in Matthew's gospel, it says they're coming from Jerusalem, so they're coming down. You know, uh, you know, going down is not so bad. But if you want to go, you you know, if you go down, you got to go back up, and that is not a pleasant hike back up. Because you're going from the lowest place on the earth, right there by the Dead Sea. You know, he's just miles from that place. And so you're, you, when you go back up to Jerusalem, you're going up to the top of the mountains. I mean, it was, it was work. It was going to be a big, you know, excursion. You weren't just going for the day. You had to journey there. And, and so these guys come out and he's like, you guys, what are you doing here? You can see he has the same kind of feelings about these guys that Jesus has about these guys. Jesus, he's compassionate with a woman caught in adultery. He's compassionate with the blind Bartimaeus calling out, please heal me, please. He has all the time in the world for those um, that, that's a leper wanting to be healed or you know, somebody that just feels ashamed, the prostitute. He has time for the tax collector. And the sinner. But for the religious leaders who had perverted the country, who had corrupted the country, and saw this as nothing more than a way to line their pockets with money and to get recognition, Jesus took them on. Toe to toe. You whitewashed tomb. You whitewashed sepulcher. Full of dead men's bones. I mean, these are not kind, friendly words. But they're true. With what was going on. So when John sees them coming, he says, You brood of vipers. That is, you, you know, your mama's a snake. Your daddy's a snake. Now, this the idea of serpent, they would have made the connection back to the devil, to Satan. And he's saying, You are sons of the devil. You are the offspring of unrighteous, ungodly people. And why are you here? What, what do you want to do? And, and probably they were there to check up on him. They're probably there to, uh, you know, build a case against him. And he just calls them out What are you doing here? Who, who warned you of the, to flee the wrath that is to come? And it would have gone um, over about the way you think it would have gone over. Whatever exactly the phrase brood of viper meant, you can be guaranteed of this, it wasn't a compliment, and it was meant to be a stinging rebuke to them. Verses 8 and 9, he says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here's something just culturally that was going on. It, there was all kinds of ritual baths that these scribes and Pharisees would take um, you know, before prayer, before if it was a scribe, before um, translating the, the manuscripts, um, before going up to the temple to worship. There were all of these places, mikvahs, their baths, ritual places of cleansing. But baptism was what you did with the pagans and the Gentiles when they wanted to convert to Judaism. John, out at the Jordan River, far away from Jerusalem, is out there baptizing, and, and it's, it's, it's as if he's saying, you are like a pagan that needs to get your heart right with God again. So these guys have come down there, and you can when you read this statement, it says, we have Abraham as our father's colleague. Kind of like, listen. We're not going to get involved in your baptism thing here, buddy. We, we, we are the descendants of Abraham. We don't do that kind of a thing. And he didn't, he didn't miss a beat. He says, "No, well, that's nice. Well, I'll tell you what, descendants of Abraham. God can wipe you out and cause these rocks to become his next descendants. Unimpressed. And even now, this tree of Abraham that has all of these branches... The Lord could lay the axe to that tree and cut it down if it does not bear fruit. Forget your ritual attempt at repentance. I'm not interested in you coming down here and putting on a show. If you're real about your desire to be here and get your life right with God, then do this. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Let's see your life be changed. It's not enough for you to keep on doing the things that you're doing. Change the way that you are living. In verse 10, so the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, Here's the fruit, here's the fruit. He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Verse 14 Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. He calls them to generosity, he calls them to honesty, and he calls them to integrity. These are all things that when we are around people who are not honest, they're not generous and they are not um, ethical, it can have such a negative impact upon our life. And that's what was going on. To the everyday person, he's saying, listen, help out those that are around you. Be a generous person. I mean, did you do the math? If you have two tunics and you give one away, you just gave away 50% of your wardrobe. If you have food, give to them the food that you have. If you have it in your hand and you see the need, you give it. Be generous. It's very much what the law of Moses says is that to the poor of the land you should have an open hand. You should give to those don't have a tight fisted hand. Be generous. be honest to the tax collector. They were told by Rome, go collect taxes, and you know we want ten percent of all the uh, of all the fish that are caught you know of the proceeds of the value of that. we want ten percent, but then Matthew, for instance, could put whatever increase he wanted on that. So the tax collectors in the land of Israel, they were Jews. But they were working for Rome. That's why they were so despised. And on top of that, guys like Zacchaeus, you know they would collect what they had to pay to Rome... But then they would also jack up the prices and they would make themselves rich. This is why Jesus says, don't take more than you're supposed to. Don't do that. To the soldiers, he says, don't be intimidating. Don't accuse falsely. Be satisfied with what you have. You have a stipend. You have a pay from the Roman uh, uh, government as a soldier. Live on it. Don't try and get more. Don't be walking in covetousness. And this was the kind of fruit He was calling them to. I mean, real practical stuff. And so they would come. Those that acknowledged their need and readiness to turn from their sin, he would baptize, preparing their hearts for the soon arrival of the Messiah. Now, John's baptism did not produce forgiveness of sin directly, right? But rather brought the hope of forgiveness of sin that the, the Messiah was about to bring onto the scene. It was turning from the things that would make it hard for the Messiah to have ministry in their life. Sin. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you find that a teaching of baptism would grant forgiveness. He's not saying that. It's only the shedding of blood that you find forgiveness. Not the dunking in of water. It's the answer of a good conscience towards God. But it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Only the blood of a lamb, the Lamb of God, can do that. So, and, you know, this is kind of evidenced by the fact that when Jesus came on the scene, what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. If baptism was taking away their sin, he wouldn't have announced the blood sacrifice of the Messiah that was coming down to the Jordan River. So it spoke of turning from sin and being ready to receive the Messiah. Now, Christian baptism is a symbolic act of the forgiveness, the cleansing, and the consecration we have received from the Messiah. One was looking forward to the forgiveness that was going to come through Jesus, one looks back on the forgiveness that we've received. You know, much like John, we also have a similar role to play in being that herald. Being that one that announces that the Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming back again. I'm challenged by this question. But when is the last time you've told somebody that Jesus is coming back soon? We don't know the day and we don't know the hour. But he did say he was coming back soon. Over and over and over again. John says that we are in the last hour. When is the last time that we told people Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is about to come back. This is a message that he preached, and we should be preaching of this kingdom that's about to come. They're going to look at you weird, but probably not as weird as they looked at John. But but people are going to look and say, Oh my gosh, you, you actually believe this? Yes, I do. I do believe that Jesus is coming back again, and you need to get your heart ready. You need to be ready for Him. You need to receive Him even now. You need to make way for the Messiah to come into your life. So that when He returns to this earth, you are with Him or you are ready for Him. We are called, to, or we are commissioned to call people to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus, we are to teach them to obey the Lord in all things, and we are to what? We are to water baptize them. So there's a very similar ministry model that we have, but rather than it looking forward like John the Baptist did, we're talking about what's happening right now and the forgiveness that the Messiah has brought and wants to issue to anybody that would put their faith and trust in him. So this is what John the Baptist was doing. This is what he was declaring out there on the banks of the Jordan. As we move into verses 15 through 17, John is going to announce... And to declare what the ministry of the Messiah is going to look like. The first thing that we see in verses 15 and 16 is that the Messiah's ministry will be that of baptizing people with power. And I'm going to interpret the fire part and just say purity. One who will baptize with power and purity. Let's read these two verses. Now as the people were in expectation... And all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. I'm not even, I don't even have the credentials. I am, it's it's way over my pay grade to even fall to the ground. And loose the sandal strap on the foot of the Messiah. That's too far above me. My pay grade is way, um, way lower than that. Again, we see the humility of him. He, he, He had the rightful understanding of the place that Jesus should have. He says, Don't confuse me with him. We are not even of the same kind. He is mighty. I am not. I can't even do the thing that would be considered the most menial task. I can't even take his shoe off. And so he says, don't get me confused. But here's what he's going to do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John prophesied about the greater work that the Messiah would do by baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, his power and fire, the purity that he wants us to have in our lives. He was calling them to to be baptized and to make way. But when Jesus came, he was going to empower them and he was going to purify them. We don't need to guess as to what John was referring to when he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Turn with me over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 8. We read this, this is the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this prophecy that he makes is fulfilled, actually, in just a few verses later in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, The 120 are gathered together in the upper room. They're waiting, as Jesus said, for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is called the promise of the Father, that is called that John the Baptist prophesied about, the baptism um, with the Holy Spirit. And they are waiting, and while they were in that place, there came that sound of a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire were over each of their heads. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak with other tongues. And um, that is, they spoke in languages they had not learned, and you don't have to wonder too much of what they're saying, because if you keep on reading in Acts chapter 2, it says they were speaking of the wonderful works of God. Paul in Corinthians says, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. When somebody speaks in a tongue, they do not speak to men, they're speaking to God. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they begin to speak in other tongues that they had not learned, and they were not preaching the gospel to men, they were speaking of the wonderful works of God. Then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, begins to preach the first gospel message in the, in the life of the church, and that day 3,000 were added. You go from timid Peter who wasn't even willing to acknowledge that he knew Jesus as the Messiah to a young servant girl and saying, depart from me and swearing that he didn't know Jesus. Wanted well, nothing to do with Jesus at that moment while Jesus was arrested. But now the city is jam-packed. There are thousands of people. If 3,000 got saved, how many were there? There was thousands of people there. And Peter stands up and begins to preach the gospel. And you, you can read it in Acts chapter 2. This is not some kind of timid, and you can you know, if you well, if you feel comfortable with Jesus, then he'll take you. You know, just you know, pray it over in your own heart. No, he that's not that kind of message. He he challenges them for their rejection of Jesus as Jesus as the Messiah. You've killed the prince of life. You need to repent. You need to get your heart right with God. And they they're cut to the core of their spirit, and they repent. But this is what a spirit-filled person looks like as they preach the gospel. And listen, we need this. We need this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is this promise of the Father? Well, Again, I'll take you back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not to leap tall buildings, okay? Not to run, you know, faster than a locomotive. It's not for anything like, no Samsung type, you know, uh, events going on here. This is so that we might open our mouths and preach the gospel to people. I, I, I do believe this. If you have and I have no intention of preaching the gospel, then we have no need for the promise of the Father. If we have no intention of opening our mouth, we don't need the power. We need the power when we're out there in the world and we are proclaiming to people their need for salvation. In Acts chapter 19, actually, let's just turn over there to Acts chapter 19, because it, it does kind of tie in nicely with what we've been reading about with John. We've already mentioned some of his disciples, right? They're like, hey, this Jesus guy that you pointed out I'm told us he's a Messiah. He's not not doing Messiah stuff. He's doing baptizing stuff, right? These are his disciples. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah because John told them. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. So then it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them into, then, in, into what were you then baptized? So they said into John's baptism. Then Paul said John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance. Saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. So you have these disciples, a you know, couple of decades at least, after the uh, beheading of John the Baptist, he had one job in his ministry, and that was to tell people that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet these disciples don't know that Jesus is a. Messiah. Uh, is um, the Messiah? Are we, are we to believe that? No, It's not that they don't know that. It's that they don't know that there's this other dynamic of the Holy Spirit. He says, have you not received the Holy Spirit? When he was with them, he noticed there's something missing in your life. Do you know about this power of the Holy Spirit? This baptism with the Spirit. We know about John's baptism. No, 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 no. And uh, that's something different. We're, we're past that now. We're beyond that Other things have taken. The Messiah has come. John's baptism was to get you ready for Jesus. Jesus is here and he now baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit falls upon them. We need this power to be a witness. God never intended that his church would seek to accomplish the gospel mission with money and education and all kinds of resources. His plan from the very beginning was that the gospel mission would be preached and proclaimed to the world through faithful, obedient disciples that are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. When we look at what the early church did without a gospel tract, without a completed New Testament, without any seminaries, without any church buildings, without any Gospel tracts, no four spiritual laws, right? None of it was printed. No clever evangelistic mes- uh, methods. They just, they were the, that was it. We're, they're the witnesses. They were the living track. They were the ones that are declaring that they had found the Messiah. And that he had forgiven them and changed their life. And he's coming back and you need to get ready. And they went in the power of the Holy Spirit and this is what's needed is that power of the holy spirit upon us i believe it was to thomas aquinas at a time in which the church was quite wealthy and one of the, the priests was you know kind of reveling in all the money that they had and said to thomas aquinas i guess we can no longer say you know silver and gold i ha- we have uh, none Remember that whole scene where at the gate, beautiful, the lame man was there, and Peter and John were there, and he's asking for money. He says, hey, silver and gold we have none, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. So this guy, this priest, goes, well, I guess we can't say that silver and gold we have none. He says, yeah, you're right, but neither can we say that which I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And that is something we have to all search our own hearts with. Are we walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we know of that unction? You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, I don't know exactly how to tell you what the anointing is, but I know when somebody has it and I know when somebody doesn't. And I think all of us can identify in our life of whether or not there is a dynamic that is different than us that's at work. And we, we go and we proclaim and we preach. Now listen, every single believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Every single believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit. But I do think not every single believer is walking around in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that I know that. So I believe it all comes at one time. Okay, that's great. Then, then how do we explain the church today? Where is that power? I I do think that the question that John posed in Acts chapter 19, and then he follows it up with praying for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit is something that all of us need to ask ourselves. Am I walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Now I know for a lot of you, you would say, I know of it. I certainly know of that power, that dynamic in my life. I preached the gospel and I knew that as I was preaching the gospel and as I was talking to somebody, this is not me. My words go this far, but man, as I spoke, the words were just undoing that person. They were convicting them. And you knew. Whether or not they repented or not, that's the Lord who gives that increase. But you know when the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you and you know when it's not. The problem is, and it's my prayer in preparing for this, is don't ever let me get to the place where I'm so used to the power of the Spirit not being upon me that that feels like the normal course of action. And I wonder if that's where the church in America is right now. We're so used to functioning without the power of the Spirit, that dynamic that is from heaven, it's not earthly. It's not manufactured. It's not a skill you acquire. It is a dynamic of the person of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit being upon your life. We need this. We need this dynamic. And whether you're like, well, I believe we get it all at once, or we get it all, you know, there's multiple feelings, all I have to say is whenever you think it comes, do you have it? Do you have the power of the Spirit of God upon your life? Does Troy have the power of the Spirit of God upon his life? Today, let's forget about 20 years ago. Tonight, are we walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? And I would say that if not, then we need to follow up on Jesus' promise that if we would ask the Father that He would give us the Holy Spirit. We need it. Oh, I mean, listen, these are maybe not the right terms to put it in, but is the church winning the day out there in the culture? Is the church winning the day among the drug addict and among the atheists, among the drunkard? Is the church having such an impact that these people are just turning around and we, don't, we, we can hardly even figure out how to disciple these people because they're getting saved so fast and so quick? That's not the problem. Oh, that we would have that problem. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, God pouring out His Spirit and, and us functioning in that is one thing. But God pouring out His Spirit upon the, the hearts and the ears of the listener is something else that has to happen too. God's got to allow when those words that are spoken with power reach somebody else's heart and their life that they bend their knee, that they are like in Acts chapter 2, cut to the heart so we need to see that outpouring upon us who proclaim but we need to pray for that conviction to be upon those that hear and that's when revival happens when many people all feel that conviction at the same time in a a locality That's, that's what a revival is they don't happen all the time and we can't control them. We can't, we can't go start a revival, you know, like start a lawnmower or something like that. It doesn't work that way. God in his sovereignty chooses to pour out his spirit upon a place. Because they deserve it? No. Actually, when God pours out his spirit upon a place, it's because they it's probably as bad as it can get. So I find hope that as we look at our country and see what's going on that there's hope for us, because it's bad. It's always the worst right before the revival starts. Now that doesn't mean that God is obligated to send a revival, but he will empower us. And if you've shared the gospel before, you've talked to people where you know that God is speaking through you and that 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 person is convicted and that they are just, they're just, they're feeling it. You can see it on their face. And yet they turn and they walk away. I know I've shared this story, but it is the, the most, single most extraordinary witnessing experience I ever had. It was when I was uh, just a teenager over in Australia on a mission trip. I've shared it before. Two guys, I, I'm standing here. There's this guy standing right here who's, I can see he's being very convicted by the Holy Spirit. And there's another guy standing here who's kind of being an antagonist. We're all relatively the same age. We're all within a couple of years of each other, 17, 18, something like that, 15. And so um, this guy's like, well, what do I need to do to get saved? And he's like, don't believe in this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about and whatever. And I'm like, why don't you believe? He goes, if, I, if you could perform a miracle right now, he said, then I would believe. And I said, if God was to perform a miracle right now in front of you, you still would not believe because you don't have faith. And I promise you, He went unconscious and fell flat on his face. He he, right between me and the other guy just went boom, and we both looked up at each other. And I was every bit as shocked as that guy. And he goes, "What happened?" I'm like, "I don't know." And so we go down to help him, and we kind of lift him up. He's kind of bloodied and stuff, and we lift, lift him up, and I'm like, "You all right?" The first words out of his mouth was, I repent and I believe. No, that's not what he said. You know what he said? I still don't believe. So listen, the Spirit of God can touch somebody's heart, but it doesn't mean that they're going to repent. So when I talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit and that it has power to go forth, like on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that certainly can happen, but there are two things that are going on. There's a revival that's happening, and the heart's, of of those that are hearing and there's an empowerment. I, I have confidence that every one of us could go out and preach the gospel full of the Holy Spirit tomorrow with power. I'm not certain of what God's plan is for our town. But we can petition Him and we can ask of Him to have mercy upon this place and upon this country. And that is what is needed.